Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. Well, this week, it was a big week for wonks and for people with European visions. It was Jean-Claude Juncker's State of the Union speech. Now, we've got to put this in a bit of context. In Europe, that's a fairly new tradition. It's not the piece of primetime theatre that it is in the United States. It's been going for eight years, not well over 100 years. So it's a fairly new tradition, and I think by European standards, Jean-Claude Juncker did pretty well. It's his job as the European Commission president to propose ideas, and it's the job of national leaders, the presidents and the prime ministers, to shoot them down. And they were very quick off the mark to shoot some of those ideas down. We'll discuss a lot of those ideas later in the podcast. In our main interview this week, we talk with Thomas Valachek. He now runs Carnegie Europe, one of the leading think tanks here in Brussels and across Europe. And he is a former ambassador to NATO for the Slovak Republic. We all know how the EU really works. For all the talk of EU unity, that's not what day-to-day politics is like. EU works on a basis of shifting coalitions coming together on an ad hoc temporary basis, issue by issue, different alignments for different issues. You need to have allies, you need to have like-minded countries in your group to get your points of view across. In our podcast panel session, our EU WTF moment, we're going to tackle Catalonia. It's a real political hot potato where millions of Catalans are seeking independence from Spain and the national government in Madrid is not having it. So there's a lot of court action and there's a lot of tension in Spain in the countdown to that vote on the 1st of October. So we're going to kick off today's podcast chatting with Christian Oliver, who's our trade editor here at Politico Europe. And we're going to have a bit of a discussion about Jean-Claude Juncker's State of the Union speech. Now, if you put your Christian Oliver man on the street hat on for a second, what was your reaction to Juncker's blockbuster list of ideas this week? Well, if I was the man in the street, I'm not sure I would have listened to Jean-Claude Juncker. But I think for those who are more of the uh, watching what he's doing with trade, He's clearly seen that there is a bigger political weapon in trade at the moment. In the world of Trump and increasing protectionism, in Brexit, where Britain, the old buccaneering free trader, seems to be all over the place, there is definitely mileage in trade, and he's seen that. It just felt good doing a deal with Canada. It felt good doing a deal with Japan, and he's trying to find a way of associating himself with clocking up some free trade deals. His fast-track approach to Australia and New Zealand is a classic example of that. He's also sensed something else is out there at the moment. People are concerned about China. They don't know where they stand in this increasingly globalised world with all this stuff coming in from China. How can we compete against that? So he has put out this idea of screening goods from China. 
it's going to be politically popular. The difficulty with the China approach at the moment is there's a lot of sound and fury, there's a lot of noise. The Commission is doing a lot of different things in terms of anti-dumping, in terms of reforms. What do they all amount to? It's very difficult to model really what this amounts to. What we're really dealing with is something political. It sounds good. If you try and do the maths and the modelling of where we are with trade at the moment, very hard to say. Which brings us to his system of splitting uh, the trade deals into two parts. So in a way, yes, Australia and New Zealand, I'm never going to say no to a trade deal between those two countries. It's bringing the two parts of my life together. Sounds great. But it's almost like they're doing the easy bit where it's clear there's a lot of political backlash to the investor protections that a lot of multinational companies get out of the trade system now. So Juncker is saying, okay, we'll go and create a different system, a fairer and more transparent system for dealing with those investor concerns. But we'll set that up further on down the track and we'll just do the easy bits of the trade deal now, like getting the good wine into Europe and getting the European products and services into Australian and New Zealand markets. Is Juncker kind of just kicking the hard stuff into the long grass and and setting the EU up for failure in the long term by making this choice? That's the obvious objection that the member states are coming up with right now. The difficulty with trade at the moment is when we look at things like Canada and Japan, they're pretty traditional style deals. And when you look at what are people looking at a decade down the line, two decades down the line, they are looking at the more soft features of trade. It's very much the sort of the IP protections, the service sector, how you look after investors, what the broader global system is for protection of investors. So fine, Juncker can now accelerate this program, but then what is the answer for the investors? He at the moment, the only thing he's actually proposed simultaneously is the idea of a multilateral investment court. It's been out there for a while. It's going to take a very long time to get traction, trying to get EU members and one negotiating partner on site is difficult enough trying to get a global system to handle this investment protection. Oh, but it's worked so well in tax, Christian. I mean, look at the new fair multinational tax system we now have. There you have it. (laughs) Um, So it's obviously going to be problematic. Um, I think also, and this is something that we've got to look at a lot harder, is that, of course, DG Trade and Cecilia Malmström burned a lot of political capital fighting all this popular animus against the ISDS system, against the system that we have at the moment for how investors sue their governments. So they created something that was meant to be more open, more accountable for the Canada deal. And this was meant to be something of a solution. So they put all of this manpower and effort into creating a way to satisfy public concerns about this for Canada. So why not try and have this open, accountable system in the trade deals that we do. It's something that's more operable. The obvious answer would be if the Canada system lasted for only the Canada deal, maybe this new idea isn't going to last very long if it ever gets off the ground. There must be. I mean, the thing we need to consider is there must be a strong fight back from the people who created the Canada arrangement to say, look, this should work. This should be something that's acceptable in the way that the EU does trade. And then you can push that and make that into something like the multilateral system. This idea of just racing ahead with Australia and New Zealand on a conventional old-style agreement that doesn't need ratification by the the 40 national regional parliaments, 
um, is fine. But oh, I smell that? a Brexit rat here, actually. Where okay. I don't doubt the interest of both parties to secure those EU, Australia, New Zealand deals. But also, Australia, New Zealand, what are they? They are close to the UK. So New Zealand has always been keen to do a trade deal with the EU. Australia, less so. That was something that was a bit on the back burner for quite a number of years. And so the sudden interest also strikes me as the EU wanting to make sure Britain doesn't leap in in 2019 and somehow do its own fast-track deal with these two countries. And it is one as well where I think we have to look at Parliament because, strangely, although they've lumped them together as Australasian deals for quite a long time, Parliament is now splitting on these that it's far more open to a New Zealand arrangement, but it's beginning to look at Australia in the same sort of lens that it would look at Mercosur. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more about what Mercosur is and why the Parliament is getting concerns about them and Australia? Sure. This all boils down to the real traditional fear, which is farming. Mercosur is the big Latin American trade bloc that most importantly has Brazil and Argentina in it. So doing a deal with Latin America is one that is seen as a big stream of cheap beef and soy flowing into Europe. The difficulty at the moment for the EU to manage is that it's doing deals with a whole gamut of countries that are big agricultural producers. North America, South America, and if we throw Australia into that mix as well, they just think the numbers don't work anymore. So there's the reason for the fear about Australia. There we go. We're not going to have all of Europe's farmers turn into B&B owners overnight. I think we're going to see some resistance in these trade negotiations. Now, let's shift a little bit to the, the broader shopping list that Juncker was throwing out there in the speech. It's going to be uh, very controversial and difficult to get deep Eurozone reforms through the system. What's your sense about how politically plausible some of Juncker's ideas are, like a Eurozone finance minister, like combining these two presidents from the Commission and the Council. You know, they're quite radical ideas, stimulating a useful debate, but in your years as a journalist, does it strike you that he's going to be able to bring these to fruition? It's going to be very, very hard to try and bring the two presidents together. I mean, that is one where I think we've seen instant backlash from the member states, and I'm sure that's going to crackle on through the next few weeks. Within the terms of Eurozone governance, again, it sounds like the ambitions are being instantly watered down, and it's very much something that goes part of the Commission power grab as well. Um, It feels very much like it's going to be institutionalised within the Commission, and we're not looking at anything that radical now. Thank you very much, Christian Oliver. Thank you. Now our main interview with the head of Carnegie Europe, Thomas Balashev. So Thomas, how are you finding think tank life? It's a bit of a change from the NATO headquarters. Well, it's, it's a change, but it's, it's really homecoming more than anything else. I mean, of my nearly 20 years now in the business, only about five were spent in the government. So I'm, I'm still a think tanker at heart, and I tried hard to be that at NATO as well, in a sense that, you know, smaller countries like Slovakia don't really have many ways of distinguishing themselves. You're probably not going to lead a military operation or play a decisive part in one, but what you can do, you know, where size doesn't matter, is to help 
produce ideas, help you know, fix problems. And that I find is actually not all that different from a think tanking job. So it's, it's what I've been all along. And are you finding the paces a little bit different to the previous times where you've done more academic work? I, f- I feel like all politics has just sped up now. Possibly. What, you know, the advantage of a think tank is there's no 3 a.m. wake-up call from the minister saying, oh my God, there's a coup in Turkey. I need you to tell us all you know on the subject and I need to have a memo on my desk by 6 a.m. Uh, so there's none of that in a think tank world. But other- otherwise, you know, the tempo isn't much... Um, much more relaxed. The reality is the think tank scene in Brussels has changed greatly. I, I, I was a think tanker here in 2002 to 2006. The number of think tanks has about quadrupled. Since then, the quality of the analysis has gone up. So this is a much more competitive world. And you don't, you don't get to simply sit back and write the beautiful study you know, once every three months and, and be, uh, be the top dog. You actually have to work a lot harder these days. Well, it's good to hear. I'm going to put you on the spot then. It's the week of Russia's Zapad military exercises. We're gearing up for them. On one hand, that's normal. They've been communicated well in advance. On another hand, these exercises can be a great cover for real military action. Uh, How worried should we be here in the EU? How worried is NATO right now, do you think? We should be worried about the uh, Russian habit of of obfuscating and sometimes just downright lying about the size and the type of exercises they hold. I wouldn't necessarily worry about this particular Zapad exercise turning into a war. I mean, I I heard the argument that it might, and I I know what it's based on. The 2008 war in Georgia and the 2014 war against Ukraine have both started as, as military exercises. But I just don't see the ingredients in place today in 2017. The Russians are not irrational. I mean, they are, they are risk-takers, sometimes reckless. They're often deluded. They genuinely believe that, that the West and CIA is out to change the government and change the regime. But they are you know, within the confines of the world, the mental world they live in. They are not irrational. And I just don't see the reason, rational reason, why they would want to risk a military conflict. Now, again, in the past, it was to stop a country from breaking away. No one's trying to break away today. That's not to say that we shouldn't worry about their habit of, again, lying and and, and obfuscating the real nature of the exercises. The fact that the Vienna documents that clearly state if an exercise is over a certain size and entails a certain number of people, there ought to be full inspections or not. The fact that the Russians don't don't really apply the document should worry us. And the reason is that in the future there may well be a situation where we want a proper monitoring, um, when the uh, tensions between the East and the West are much higher than they are today. And if we don't have that recourse, then it makes everybody jumpy, right? It makes the Western countries feel that they need to respond with an exercise of their own, and that's how accidents happen. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of another East-West divide, more of an internal one in the EU now, It's State of the Union week, where Jean-Claude Juncker delivers his big speech to the European Parliament. And you've written recently that Europe is effectively going through a series of mood swings. And I was wondering what you think it will take for the EU to keep on a positive path. We seem to be in an upswing right now. But if you're right, what goes up must come down. So, So how can Europe structurally keep itself on the up? Right. The argument we made recently with my colleague, the excellent Stefan Lenne, was simple. I mean, we, we are on, on a good path as, as Europe. It's a it's couple of quarters of really good, strong growth. Uh, in fact, outpacing as Eurozone, both Britain and the United States. It's the fact that unemployment has been falling, so there's some room for optimism there. The migration crisis, even before we wrote, uh, at the time we wrote the paper, the Mediterranean route, the uh, the one from uh, Libya to Italy, was still very much alive. But of course, the Aegean route has been, for all practical purposes, shut down. Since then, the Mediterranean route 
has also slowed to a trickle. So we have good reasons for optimism. The point we made with Stepan was, you know, let's not rest on our laurels. Um, none of the structural problems have been solved. There still isn't a proper EU-wide migration policy that addresses the issue of asylum. Uh, processing, how do you process uh, asylum seekers across Europe? We still don't have a functioning process for redistributing asylum seekers who are already in the Schengen area. On the uh, economic issues, there's still no proper Europe-wide bank deposit insurance system. You know, I'm on a fence on whether an economy minister is needed in a proper Eurozone budget, but clearly some greater degree of integration to make sure that we don't, our economic policies don't completely diverge is also needed. So our simple point was, let's not rest on our laurels. And I get the sense that the message has been well internalized. I mean, when you look at what President Macron is doing, he's clearly doing his homework first, the, the uh, sort of unrelenting, shockingly rapid focus on, on the economic labor market reforms in France. I mean, everything points to the fact that he recognizes that he must first sort out France's economy and, frankly, France's reputation in the eyes of Germans, and then try to um, jointly with Berlin address the, uh, the further economic integration. So I think that the mission, the, the lessons we have made have been, have been absorbed and are being recognized. And if I can ask you a question as a Slovak citizen for a second, one of the other things Macron tried to do was really, well, at least give the impression of reaching out to Central and Eastern Europe, trying to have a dialogue about some of these identity issues that have a real possibility to be a huge cleavage there. As a Slovak, did you buy his effort? Do you think that that is part of the reason why Fico now has a bit of a different rhetoric to an Orban or the Polish government, for example, in these discussions? The process of, of Slovak change of heart has started before President Macron's visit, but certainly his visit has helped encourage the government to go down what I think is the right path. Look, what's happening in Central and Eastern Europe is a realization that the process of integration into the European Union is in real danger of being reversed. A realization that there are probably a good you know, number of EU countries, let's call them older EU countries, that have, they were probably never too enthusiastic about enlargement in the first place, and now see a decent opportunity to reverse the process uh, of sorts by creating a core, uh, not coincidentally consisting of, of older EU countries. I do know a bit about the Slovak government thinking. The, the thinking is simple. You know, we are at the end of the day a smaller country with very modest armed forces on the periphery of the Western world, both the EU and NATO border. Uh, it is very much in our security interest to be fully integrated into both the EU and NATO, because if we're not, well, in the eyes of the Western investors, we become, again, a smaller country in a potentially risky neighborhood with small armed forces. And uh, do you really put your billions into building, let's say, a new car plant into a place with a patchy reputation and an iffy security situation, you don't. So we've recognized that it's very much in Slovak security interest to be fully integrated. And hence the, what, what seems to be clear decision to, uh, if you will, break with Poland and Hungary and seek an integration into the core. We are one of the very few Central European countries to already uh, be using the euro. So we have a good starting point to be at the core. And that's why I think you saw a bit of a soft paddling on the issue of asylum as well, and the redistribution of asylum seekers. So I wonder then how much you know the ingredients for that long-term integration is compromise on content. It seems like that's the direction Slovakia is headed in, and how much of it is sort of pure power politics of the Visegrad group of countries, for example, maintaining their power by just sticking together as a unit. So do you see Visegrad really operating as a, a powerful group in the future, or are they likely to get stuck in a 
a split and not really be a, a big power player at, at summits? Look, I mean, it, it's a simple fact that if some of the countries, if, if a core is genuinely being formed and if, if EU is genuinely being divided into, again, a core and a periphery and, and half the Euro, well, half the Visegrad countries end up on one side and the other on the other, well, it's going to be very hard to form cooperation on the issues that only concern one of the two sides, core or periphery. You know, on, on defense, whatnot, where which may be an issue that straddles both sides of the EU divide. There may be cooperation, but the, uh, going back to my earlier point, I think Visegrad is at real risk of being divided. If so, that is going to be a problem for Slovakia uh, and other smaller countries like it. Uh, you know, we, we all know how the EU really works. For all the talk of EU unity, that's not what day-to-day politics is like. EU works on a basis of shifting coalitions coming together on, on an ad hoc temporary basis, issue by issue, different alignments for different issues, and striking deals. This is very much a bargaining trade-off kind of kind of body. Uh, you need to have allies, you need to have like-minded countries in your group to get your uh, points of view across. Um, if uh, Slovakia doesn't have Visegrad on its side, it becomes harder to make sure that its point of view on posted workers directive, on digital market, things where we have a, a strong point of view on taxation, it makes it harder for us to make sure that we are heard. That means you know, the need to build new alliances, new coalitions. So you, you, know, you, you do want to be part of a group uh, in the EU. It's, it's a lonely place and one where it's really hard to see your interests being taken seriously if you don't have friends on your side. Well, one issue that's right on topic this week as Juncker delivers his State of the Union speech is the frustration that people in Eastern European countries have had and Central European countries around being palmed off with inferior products, whether it's food and drink, cosmetics, uh, inferior ingredients have been put into the products sold in these countries. And do you expect that the EU is going to move on this? And, and is that a, a cheap, useful way to send an olive branch from Brussels out to that part of Europe? Uh, inferior foods. What, what, what a great story. Really, the, the perfect story, really, for these times of East-West tensions. Because to the Westerners, I mean, it, it seems to confirm all of these sort of stereotypes of, of Easterners as, you know, uh, possibly somewhat paranoid, always a little jumpy. And, you know, perhaps to minority in Western Europe, the message is also, well, maybe they don't know better, maybe they don't deserve better. So, you know, is, is there a real meat to the story? Pardon the pun. It's quite clear that the quality of, uh, uh, whether it's you know, washing detergents or, or, or luncheon meats, uh, canned meats, is, is quite different. I don't buy the supermarkets arguments that they're catering to individual tastes uh, I, I, I know of no consumer who willingly buys uh, scraps of chicken meat instead of pork for lunch I know of no consumer who prefers a less effective detergent if a more effective one is on the market so I don't I don't buy the argument I think you know they're doing what business is supposed to be doing looking after its profits and after its margins and I think politicians are doing what they're supposed to be doing so let me actually move to somewhat more serious territory because Again, the inferior foods is an easy story to make fun of. But um, I think there is something more sinister happening. Uh, and I don't mean with regard to foods. I mean with regard to the East-West tensions. This is not an original point. My, my colleague, the brilliant Stefan Lena, made it in, in, in one of our papers. He made the point that we're sort of at a perilous time. Of course, in the European Union, we always have different coalitions you know, fighting it out over different issues. But you know, for the first time in a, in a very long time, maybe first time anybody can remember, on all the big issues of the day, uh, whether it's uh, answer to the uh, migration crisis, whether it's uh, rule of law, whether it's taxation, whether it's future of the European Union, the core versus periphery, 
we're basically looking at the same dividing line. It's the new member states, if you will, versus the old member states. And that's potentially very dangerous because in the old EU, if you will, where you had shifting different coalitions with different membership depending on the issue, well, that creates a million different possibilities for trade-offs, right? You know, the Greeks agreed to support the Dutch on, the, let's say, I don't know, uh, oil exploration in the Arctic because the Greeks have no real interest, whereas the Dutch support the Greeks on fishing in the Aegean because they have no interest, real interest there. But what happens when on all of the big issues, all of the countries are lined up on the same sides of the divide? Well, there's no opportunities for a trade-off. Then we're looking at the mother of all debates coming up soon, the, the next multinational financial framework and the debate over what happens to the cohesion funding versus agricultural funding, especially now that Britain is out along with its tens of billions of euros that it pays to the budget. There I see is a real potential for East-West divide to get out of control and I'm glad that the President of the Commission is making an effort and going the extra mile to, to ratchet down the tensions. Now another area that has given a lot of hope in the last year is defense cooperation. And I wanted to ask you about your thinking there, because you're quite an expert in that field. Um, I wonder how much of the rhetoric is matched by reality. As someone who can read between the lines, do you think there is real progress here? Or is it you know, a lot of hopeful words that still have a long way to go? There's more and more substance in EU defense policy. And I speak as someone who has well, observed it, watched it, and has written about it for two decades now. I mean, let's be honest, it's, it started a bit as, as an institution-building exercise rather than capability-building exercise. And there still to this day remains you know, it's a powerful school of thought in, in Europe that, that the project of European building the European Union will be incomplete unless the EU has its own defense arm, unless there is an, a Euro army, and frankly it will be incomplete as long as NATO with the Americans, uh, Turks and others um, uh, is in charge of our self-defense. And a lot of the early efforts that went into EU defense building was frankly not aimed at building new capabilities, meaning you know, uh, new weapons or, or smarter acquisition of weapons, but went into institutions, creating the trappings, the semblance of EU defense policy, because the idea was, again, to make a point that the EU is now in the build, build business of defense, and it almost didn't matter how effective or, in fact, how corrosive uh, that may have been in terms of dividing EU and NATO forces. More lately, what I've seen over the past few years, and particularly with the latest batch of initiatives, I'm, I'm heartened. Uh, as a pragmatist who, who believes that EU should both have a stronger defense identity, but it needs to be one that actually puts real weapons, real capabilities on the table when, when push comes to shove, I'm heartened by what I've seen lately. I think the idea of a European defense fund, that it will pay up to 20% on top of what the member states pay for weapons, assuming those member states buy those weapons jointly, that's a great idea because it, it, it really has the potential to wean the governments of their habit of always buying things nationally, always put, looking after the domestic defense industry. See if the defense minister now goes to the prime minister and says, I have a choice of buying this particular infantry fighting vehicle at home, but it's going to cost me a fortune, and I'm going to be able to buy four, but I will protect the home uh, industrial champion. Or, you know, I can do this with these three countries around me. I'm going to be able to buy a lot more because we divide the order. Plus, the EU is going to pay 20% on top of that. Well, that's a much stronger argument that has the potential to outweigh the industrial concerns. So I think the EU is on the right path. I'm, I'm encouraged. One other thing that caught my eye, um, I was doing all my research of, of your latest papers and, and thoughts, and it speaks to that point about how politics is changing, the think tank world never stands still anymore. Uh, it's you recently published a paper on how artificial intelligence might disrupt alliances. 
So whether we're thinking of NATO as an alliance or the European Union as an alliance, how do you think we can shape artificial intelligence in a way that you know makes it compatible with those alliances rather than something that blows them up? Right. I mean, technology is one of those things where think tankers and think tanks are sometimes accused of chasing the next story for the sake of you know, looking on, uh, seeming to be on a cutting edge and, and attracting new funding. But I, but I really believe that it will change almost everything, the, 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 all the other issues we talk about, European politics, alliance politics, uh, democracies, in a way they're only, we are only now beginning to fathom. So the piece I wrote was about the impact of artificial intelligence-enabled technologies on alliance politics. NATO, like the European Union, and this was mostly written with NATO in mind, you know, NATO, like the EU, is a bargaining organization where different coalitions come together or, or not to strike compromises. Um, and when you then realize, and you, you put new technologies into the mix, you realize that they could have a profound effect on the politics, the low politics of how consensus is formed. To give you a few examples, normally the way a country makes a case for a military operation is that it presents intelligence. It comes to the NAC table uh, and in a somber voice announces, I have serious news to share. This is the latest warring trend and here's my, here's my evidence for it. But what happens when, when AI enables to now fake both video and, and audio outputs to such incredibly detailed level that it, they become basically indistinguishable from fakes that you really can't anymore tell with a great degree of certainty what is real and, and what is fake. How do you then trust the intelligence? And what happens to the alliance policy making, you know, to the sausage making process? It's getting me scared. I'm even thinking further down the track where I'm wondering how many marriages can get wrecked with crazy fake videos. And I'm wondering how I'm going to get tripped up as a playbook editor at two in the morning with limited scope to verify everything before it gets in your inbox at seven o'clock. But we won't think about that now. Um, Maybe a final question out of left field. Uh, I was reading, you were saying that Franklin Roosevelt is, you know, maybe not your hero, but at the very least, someone you look up to, your role model in the political world. Is there anyone who you think resembles Franklin Roosevelt on the world stage today, or who gets closest? Wow, I mean, at, at the risk of, of being proven wrong very, very quickly, we'll, we'll not, because this is unfolding in real life and, and in, in real time, I'm very hopeful about Emmanuel Macron. Uh, and even though he has you know, tense relationship with Central Europe, despite his overture to us, which was appreciated, he's, you know, he, he still remains in, in a different mindset, but um, in a different place from most Central European countries. But I'm a big fan of what he's trying to do. I think that he's shown so far not just a good grasp of the policy, but an incredibly keen grasp of the politics. You know, of course, he has had plenty of time as a finance minister, or the economy minister, to uh, to kind of form an idea of what sort of reforms France needs. So he's not. It, it isn't surprising that he should come to power with, with a fairly sort of coherent set of ideas on on what reforms he needs to pass. But what was more surprising is to see him, you know, have the, display the political know-how in putting together a, a coalition, disarming so far some of the most violent opposition from the trade unions. He has shown an incredible knack for the for, for low politics. And then in some ways, again, I, I'm not making a parallel with FDR. You need a lot more of a track record to be able to compare to, to what I think was one of the greatest presidents uh, in history. But some know, likeness is there. And I, I, I admire that in Macron, and I wish him all the best. We need him to succeed. Well, Thomas Valaschek, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. My pleasure entirely.
here in the EU Confidential Mansion with Alva Finn. Hi, Alva. Good morning. And Lena Rabaruz. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Alva. And we're here for the EU WTF moment this week. We might even have two for you. That's how much we care about you listeners. So first up, we have got the treasure trove of legal documents, 41 documents, in fact, that the European Commission decided to publish yesterday in what is officially called the Transparency Register. But these documents were published in a pretty untransparent way. And they are all the legal documents and decisions underpinning all of the elements of Jean-Claude Juncker's State of the Union speech. And my point, and why I've nominated it for this week's EU WTF, is that unless you really know where to look, there is no way you could stumble upon this. And that's not a very transparent system. And uh, I think I would put it out there that if you're going to cram all of that stuff into a State of the Union speech, a speech that talks about the importance of journalism and free debate and so on, the very least you could do is let people know that you've actually put all of this stuff out instead of reserving it for a drip-drip news management technique over the next week. What do you guys reckon? Yeah, I think it's fine. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, I understand why they take that approach, you know? Like, people cannot digest that much, particularly the media. <laughs> Get but off I, this podcast. You're no, not welcome I just, anymore. You know... We know people who work in consultancy and some people know that you get these alerts. So some people were aware that these were out. I do think it's just a manageable way of dealing with each separate proposal, no? Like Lena, I, you, t- you tell me, you're a consultant. You get the big bucks for looking for this sort of stuff. Actually, we do have a dedicated um, a colleague in the office who's all the time looking into what has been published and uh, He's they the dig chief into it. Web refresher. <laughs> exactly. And just to let you know, Alva and Ryan, usually when you are part of the Transparency Register and you subscribe to their newsletters, every morning you wake up with. I don't know, 15 or 20 emails from them saying and confirming that they have published these uh, uh, policy But you papers. got those email alerts yes, yesterday. every morning I, I, no, I received them. when the speech happened, you got those alerts? Uh, this morning I did, as a matter of fact. Ah, but that's not yesterday. That's I would have to verify, but it's very technical. I mean, on an average citizen, we will not be really interested to read these policies it's a true. I do see uh, your point, Ryan, that maybe they should have alerted everyone beforehand, but still it's, it's a very technical matter. It's the transport or the road maps or the trade. Well, trade is a very hot issue now, but still very technical. It needs some people that they will really dig into it. Yeah, and but interested I don't get to know. what's the problem with telling people the documents there. Well, they you can you can make a press release. Why can't you link to the actual legal proposal? But they did, you know. They they let mm, people know through through alerts. God, I <laughs> have, I should do this really in my own work, but I don't want all those alerts. Are there yeah. is there a way of like filtering those out? You know, actually, it depends on the policy area you are interested in and you're covering. So um, yeah. So the point is, you have to know before the document exists that you want the document. I think that's my problem with them. Brian, we can do some uh, some training on just the transparency <laughs> register website, and you just know how to dig into it. All Happy right, to do I've, it. <laughs> I've been schooled. Snap. The Brussels bubble clearly is better at this stuff than me. Uh, let's move on to a second EU WTF then. What's up with Catalonia? Bisca Catalonia, no? <laughs> so we're talking now about the referendum that supporters of Catalan independence want to hold on the 1st of October. They've been told very consistently, in fact for years, by the Spanish national government that they're not allowed to hold that referendum. And the latest manoeuvres that we've seen is judicial investigations into 712 mayors in Catalonia. And also a judge has ordered that the referendum organisers' website be shut down. 
So we're, we're headed towards a situation where peaceful protesters and independence campaigners want to have this vote, and all of the elements of the Spanish authorities at the federal level say, no, this can't happen under any circumstances. And so we're headed for a big standoff, um, and it's a bit confusing to outsiders, is why I think it's a, a, a WTF moment from a lot of angles. Yeah, when I heard about this, it just made me cringe. It just seems like the totally wrong approach to convince people that you're Spanish and you need to stay in Spain. It's also quite worrying, like, yeah, why not just let them have it? Because really, it's it's not going to actually be official anyway. Uh, this just seems like a way to really prod at people who want something really quite badly. Well, the Catalans say it's real. They say if they win the referendum, the current president of Catalonia, Carlos Puigdemont, he says, OK, we're an independent country the day afterwards. And when I sat down with him in June, I didn't quite get the sense that there would be an army the next day or that Catalonia was going to get a seat at the European Council table if it suddenly unilaterally declared independence like that. But Lena, you you have some Catalan connections. What's your take on it? Yeah, all? you know, I, I lived six years before moving to, uh, to Brussels in, in Barcelona and I have lots of friends in Catalonia and the The problem is that we are not seeing how this escalation of the verbal accusations from Madrid to uh, Barcelona. There is a lot of emotions. Uh, This is a historic conflict between Madrid and Barcelona. It's not like five years um, old or ten years old. Historically, the Catalans always believed that they wanted to separate and have their own country. From my point of view, I think at this moment, if they really, the, the, the Madrid government, uh, would like the Catalans to stay and uh, sit and negotiate, I think they need to change their tone um, to really um, show the Catalans you're part of Spain, to beg them to stay. And if we compare with how Cameron uh, treated this situation when the Scots wanted to do their referendum, they made the Scottish people feel like you are part of UK, please stay with us. Even the headlines in the media, it was totally different. Now you read El País or Confidencial or all the, the Spanish media, it, it is really sad. The Catalans, they don't deserve to be treated this way. And they need to put their argument forward. Escalating from a legal matter and prosecuting people, it will only heat up the emotions and the feelings of the Catalans to just go ahead with their referendum. And it seems very much to me like it's an argument based in law, but not in reason about why Catalans should stay in Spain. I mean, the Spanish national government, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it does have the law on its side in a lot of these arguments. But it does seem a little unsatisfactory where it was it was put to me um, by some senior Spanish political figures. Well, no, Catalonia supported the current constitution more than anybody else when we voted on it in the 1970s. And I just sort of looked and said, well, but most of the people who live in Catalonia weren't even alive in the 1970s. So you can't really just say that's the end of the matter because you voted once in the 1970s on this question. It also just seems we've had a lot of referendums recently where things have not really been about law or facts, but about feelings. And this just seems like the worst way to stir up negative feelings in in the Catalan people by prosecuting their mayors for holding what they think is a perfectly democratic, reasonable thing to do when they want to have their right to self-determination. I just think it's not the right approach. And are there any dangers with nationalism? One, one final point, because 
I feel like almost all forms of nationalism can be very dangerous very quickly. The Catalans are very peaceful and colourful in the way that they represent their nationalism. But by the same token, maybe it's not the way forward for Europe to be shrinking back into smaller units rather than thinking at a big, broad European level. So is that a point on the Madrid government side, that it's trying to keep a lid on something ugly, regardless of whether Catalans have good arguments around their language and autonomy. Again, Ryan, I think Madrid is is not uh, treating the issue in the uh, smartest way. Um, uh, Four years ago, they had uh, the possibility to sit on a table and negotiate. The Catalans are trying to have the same deal or even a bit better than the Basque country. Mind you that the Basque country had preferential agreement with the federal government, the Spanish federal government. So uh, four years, from four years till now, why not Madrid couldn't put their ego a little bit down and sit with the Catalans and uh, try to give them a better deal and fight the nationalism and keep Spain united and keep Spain an important, as ever, country uh, of the European Union. And it's time for another round of Dear Politico. So everyone get your advice hat on, whether you're a listener or a panelist. We've got some great feedback to give to the latest real listener with a real problem that's written in to EU Confidential. So C, we'll call them C. We're going to move into like a Bond movie sort of theme with the way that we anonymize our correspondence. C writes, I've been thinking to contact you since this podcast started. I'm really worried about the problems that I get from the people around me. My boss is a very bad man and a bad manager. We run the Europe office for a company where his job is to lobby and engage, but he never does. He is traveling 90% of the time. He treats us like slaves, calling us in the middle of the night because we never know where he is. He puts all of the pressure on us and our annual appraisals are already bad. I've been living in this bad situation for three years. I never got on a raise or even went on a training. He lies about everything and he takes credit for all of our work back in headquarters. He threatens us all of the time with firing and he's told all of my colleagues that I am not beautiful and that I am a depressed person. Please tell me what should I do? I get a very good package, but I'm paying a lot to my therapist. Ladies of the panel, what are your suggestions? I would just quote Alva say, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I mean, this is a classic case of harassment and bullying. The first thing that I would do is look up legislation in Belgium. Most European countries now have legislation that protects people from this kind of like bullying and harassment. I do think one of the good things is that your letter says that you guys have actually written to headquarters. So you've actually made complaints about this. That's really good because you, you've gone on record now as saying these things have happened. But they say uh, there were anonymous complaints. Does that affect uh, the willingness of a HR department to take it seriously? Yeah, I think what you will... No, well, I mean, you can just say that was me. <laughs> you know, it's it w- won't be anonymous anymore. Uh, but what you... And I keep saying this... Write down everything that happens. Make sure that you have a record of it. If there's a paper trail, if, you know, and also the fact that this is happening to all of you is also good. You could probably take a case against not just your employer, because if you have complained and your boss just keeps getting promoted, that reflects really badly on your office. So I think you're in a good position. Uh, to be honest, I think you need to write down everything that happened. I think you need to encourage some of your colleagues to, to take this case with you. And you, you never know, once you make this threat, he'll probably be gone. But you could also get a good settlement out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, three years of this terrible psychological abuse in the end could look good for I you. I think and it's also illegal not to give someone a raise. In Belgium, there are mandated salary rises each year. Lena? 
Well, see, first of all, good that you're seeing a therapist, you're getting uh, emotional and psychological support. Honestly speaking, if I were in your shoes, I would just take a flight and go to the headquarters and sit outside the door of the human resources. And I will stay there until the human resources listens to me. And if I get fired, I will get a very good package because I've been working there for, for three years. So. And let's face it, the boss isn't around to uh, monitor. So yeah. <laughs> you're, you're um, able to get to the airport. Uh, the, exactly. Undetected. And uh, three years, it's a long time. And it's a, it's a lot of, of damage uh, on a psychological level. Uh, the money you're, you're spending now on a therapist, you should be saving and traveling the world and enjoying your life. No one is allowed to bully another. And... I'm sure you are very strong and I'm sure that thinking to hire a lawyer and see a therapist, you're very smart and you should just take a flight and go. And I think there might be a bit of a structural problem there as well that goes beyond this individual bad manager. Because if what you say is true and the company is promoting bad behavior effectively, then, you know, maybe this isn't the sort of place that you want to stick around in. Like, it's something where you need to try and resolve your situation and get some compensation for it. Uh, But it doesn't sound like there's going to be a long-term solution to your problem if it's as endemic as you suggest. And now for an EU thumbs-up moment. Have we got any State of the Union-themed thumbs-up, ladies? I think it was great that people showed up. You know, the parliament wasn't ridiculous. <laughs> it's a pretty or, low bar or, for a thumbs up, or isn't it? Full room, full room um, by all means. Yeah, but what we were also is thinking maybe it wasn't full. Maybe, you know, because they really just show the commissioners and the party leaders all the time. They didn't really pan out very often. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was my thumbs up for the State of the okay, Union. Okay, MEPs, you get a tick from us for actually showing up to do your job, Lena. <laughs> well done, well done. I think they were on time. And uh, some people that they were attending, they told us it was a full room. So it was wasn't only the cameras. Alba, good news. All right, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back the same time next week. As always, podcasting is a team effort, so I want to give a big shout out to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Ling and Rosie Belson for all of their help in making this episode of EU Confidential possible. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.